Well, good morning, good morning on this long Labor Day weekend. I'm glad that you're here. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with us this morning to the third chapter of the book of Revelation. And if this is the first time that you have gathered with us, then we'll tell you what we've been doing. We are involved in a study of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor as recorded in the second and the third chapter of the book of Revelation. And we've titled this series of messages seven because there are seven churches and we've chosen seven words that kind of encapsulate what Jesus' message is to each one of these churches. And if you don't remember, this is when Jesus revealed this to the Apostle John who had walked with Jesus and was there when he was crucified and when he was resurrected. He had been exiled in the latter years of his life, somewhere around 95 A.D., about 60 years, somewhere around there after the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. He'd been exiled by the Roman government to the Isle of Patmos, which was a prison island. And there in that place is where Jesus came and spoke to him the things that are written in the book of Revelation. It was right at the very close of the first century. And already by that time, as you read the book of Revelation, as you read chapters 2 and 3, and even as you read through the book of Acts, even as the churches are beginning to be spread throughout uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and spreading out into the uttermost parts of the earth, already there are things that are going on with the churches that have to be addressed. And one of those things that is the most de detrimental was obviously that false teaching, false teachers, false prophets were already beginning to rise up in the midst of God's people and lead God's people astray from what Jesus had taught and what was written in the Word of God. And so Jesus has some very specific things to say to these seven churches. They were seven major churches in the area known at that time as Asia Minor, that Jesus has some very specific things to say. And as you read the words of Jesus in these letters to these churches, it, it, it becomes pretty evident that Jesus is not trying to pull any punches. Jesus is speaking very clearly and very straightforwardly. And as I, as I kind of juxtapose that and the way that the Apostle Paul spoke uh, at times when he was confronting issues like this, it, it strikes me how interesting it is in our environment today, right now, in churches in America, it, how it is so unkosher to point out false teachers. There are people that really get upset about it. I mean, just really get it. And it doesn't matter how bad they are. It doesn't matter how far off the charts that individual is that's teaching. It's just, it's, it's just not kosher to do that. And it, and it seems to me that we're so often more concerned with being politically correct than we are being doctrinally correct. And it seems as if we're almost more interested in being received and welcomed by the world than we are in being faithful to the truth of God. And so Jesus, in these letters, and they're not just letters to these churches, they are the Word of God. They are inspired by Him. They're for God's people of all time. So He's not just speaking to them. He is speaking to us. And He's pointing out some very difficult, some very specific issues that they needed to confront, that Jesus expected them to confront, and that we also need to be constantly on guard against, and we need to be ready to confront. And so, as I said, we've chosen those seven words to encapsulate what Jesus is saying to us, to the church in Ephesus. You remember, well, the word was return, because Jesus says you've left your first love. 
You need to get back to me. You need to come back to me. So the word is to return to the church in Smyrna. His word to them was to remain. They were in the midst of persecution. And so Jesus encouraged him. He says, no matter how difficult it becomes, remain faithful to me. And the third church was the church in Pergamum. And the word there is recognize. He said, wake up and look and recognize the compromise that is going on in your midst. And we said then, they were compromising with compromise. And to the church in Thyatira, the word was resist. And there specifically, boy, he really brought it out more than he had in any of the other three churches, that they are to resist false teachers, they are to resist false prophets, and they are to resist false teaching. This morning, we come to the fifth of the seven churches, and that is the letter to the church in Sardis. And the word to this church is revive. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you need to wake up. And why is that? Because they had, quite frankly, fallen into spiritual slumber. And so Jesus, in essence, says to them, wake up, you slumbering bums. I said to you last week that he said to the church in Sardis, if you don't deal with this issue in your midst, I'm going to come and stomp a mud hole in you. That's his, would be West, if he was from West Texas, that's how he would say it. The way he would say this to the Sardis church is, wake up, you bunch of slumbering bums. So let's dig in to the text this morning and see what this is about and see how it applies to us. First of all, it's interesting as you look in verse 1 of chapter 3, that this church had a dazzling reputation on the outside. I mean, they were very well known and they were very well respected. In verse 1, Jesus says to them, I know your deeds and I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So when Jesus says you have a name, he's talking about the fact that when people speak of that particular church, maybe the churches around, maybe even the community, I don't know, but Jesus is saying, I know that you have this reputation that you are alive. But then come those pesky, penetrating eyes of the Lord. Like last week, he introduced himself as he who has eyes like flame of fire. In other words, I see beneath the surface. I see to what's really going on. So even though they have this wonderful reputation, those pesky eyes of Jesus that penetrate beneath the surface kick in here and to see what is really there. And he says, you know what? You have a reputation that you are alive. But the reality is you are dead. So I suspect if you were to visit the church in Sardis, if you were in town and, and you went to the church in Sardis, then they would look very good. The people would speak very well. They would say all the right words. They had learned all of the Christian lingo, if you will, by that time. And, and they were doing all of the good things. Jesus says, you know, you've got a good reputation. I know your deeds and I know all of this stuff is going on. So Jesus in this letter, he doesn't mention any outward things that are a problem. I mean, people talk well of them, They're, they look good, uh, they, they act good, there's no open immorality that's going on that he ever mentions, there's no false teaching that he has to address as he did with the church last week. So everything about this church looked good. And we can't, I don't, you know, I, when we talk about the church, we can't just talk about the church as if church is this entity out there that we're not connected to. Because the church is us, right? So if there's a problem with the church, what does that mean? 
There's a problem with us. There's a problem with the individual. So Jesus is not just writing to the church in Sardis. He's writing to the individual people in Sardis because this is a problem. So there's none of those things that are going on there. And so when we listen to this, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, well, what would Jesus' words not only say to my church, but, but because I am a member of the church, because I'm a part of the body of Christ, then what would Jesus' words mean and say to me? Well, Derek's going to dig into that much deeper in a moment. But first of all, let me just say that Jesus sees and knows, folks, about us that everything that glitters isn't gold. You know, everything that looks good just really isn't that good. I remember the wise counsel that I heard a pastor give to a young woman in his church that he cared a great deal for, and she'd kind of fallen head over heels in love with a pair of pants. You know, sometimes a pair of pants walks by and just like for a guy, you know, a skirt walks by and all of a sudden their whole world just goes south. Well, she had fallen head over heels for this guy and, and the pastor knew him, knew the dude well. And he cared for her and, and, and so he said to her, he said, you know, he may look like a knight in shining armor on the outside, but if you look deeper, you'll discover he's nothing but a turkey in tinfoil. And that's not how that joke goes. I cleaned it up. I do have a filter. Isn't that great? At the ripe old age of 66, my filter has begun to kick in. I could have used the other word, but he's just a turkey and tenfold. In other words, look a little deeper because everything that looks good on the outside, how many of you women could testify to that? And probably a few of you men could testify to that as well. That everything that looks good on the outside is really not it. Well, that could actually describe the church in Sardis. They looked good on the outside. They made a great impression, but in spite of their dazzling reputation that I'm quite sure they were proud of, as a matter of fact, Jesus goes on deeper and he says, but there is a dark reality on the inside. In spite of your reputation that you are alive, Jesus says, you are dead. Now, this is Jesus' assessment. Everyone else's assessment was that they're alive. But Jesus says, I look beneath the surface and I declare you are dead. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And then the last two words are, wake up. Which means revive, come alive again, come out of this spiritual lethargy that you are in and come back into spiritual energy. Now this... Week, I was thinking about this again. How could this happen? You know, and, and Derek is going to dig into that in just a moment. In other words, how could, how could a church, how could the individuals, how could we as individuals have this outward exterior, this reputation, if you will, that we are spiritually alive, that we are spiritually on fire because we look good, because we talk good, because we know the religious language to use, and, and we're doing all of these things. How could it be possible to be on the outside alive spiritually? But Jesus looked on the inside and say, you have really fallen into deep spiritual lethargy, and you need to wake up. This week I did some reading from the Barna Research Institute. How many of you have ever heard of George Barna and the Barna Research Institute? They are a research institute that began about 30 years ago, I think it was, George Barna. Uh, and they initially researched only churches. 
just things, trends, and you know, just finding out what's going on. And, and they would develop statistics. They've enlarged their research projects now. They, they do worldwide stuff in business and various other But their specialty still is looking inside the churches in America to see what is really happening. And it was, it was shocking, yet not shocking, this week when I read these research statistics from George Barna, very well respected, about the COVID-19 process, you know, where we started, where we were in the middle, and kind of where we are today. These are very up-to-date statistics. And at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when we were just beginning, churches were beginning to shut down because it was recommended, their research showed that 70% of pastors at that time, 70% were very confident that their church would survive the pandemic. 70%. I, I would have thought it would have been higher, but evidently there were 30% that knew their church was so fragile that it might not make it. Recently, when that same survey was done, only 58% of pastors were confident that their church was going to make it through this experience. That's 42% of pastors in America that don't have much confidence that the church is going to survive. In fact, they tell us, Barna tells us and others, that one in five churches in America will fail within the next 18 months as a result of the COVID-19. One in five, 20% of churches in America will close their doors. Approximately one-third of active Christians who were active before the pandemic have said they will not return to church. Not temporarily. They just won't come back. One-third. 33% who were classified as active Christians have said, we won't be going back. They discovered that even during the pandemic, as churches were trying to gear up, as we did and other churches around or have tried to do the best they possibly could to continue to teach and to continue to connect with people through virtual uh, you know, means, through cameras, and, and all the things that we did for those six months where we were recording our services and, and projecting them out there, that during that time, one-third of Christians, church members, did not even participate in those virtual services of their church. One-third didn't even participate in that. I know millennials get beat up all the time, but their survey of millennials is that one-half of millennial Christians haven't accessed any services during the pandemic online. Not their church, not anybody else's church. One half of Christian millennials. Those are pretty stark statistics, aren't they? And those are done by a, res a res very respected Christian researcher that it has an interest in really understanding what is the temperature of the church in America? What is really going on, not just the outside, because, you know, you can look around in the church in America, and it looks pretty darn good. It can, at times, look pretty good. I mean, there are churches that are just brimming, and, and you know, people are, can't even hardly get in the door, and, and all those kinds of things, and so on, and doing a lot of good stuff, even like we are. And so it's not difficult to look at the, at the attendance and go, well, man, this looks pretty good. 
But Barna wants to get beneath the surface as Jesus does and find out really what is the spiritual temperature, though, that is underneath that. And, and as he does that in these confidential surveys of Christians, these are real people that he talks to, he finds out there's another reality. There's another reality that 30% of them have already decided, I'm never going back. Now, whether they do or not, whether they don't, right now, in their heart, they've decided, I'm not going back. One third of those folks that when it all happened and the church had to do the best they could to continue ministry, didn't even access that ministry. One half of millennials, one in five churches will close their doors in the next 18 months. By the beginning of 2022. Doesn't sound all that much different than the church in Sardis, does it? I know you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And I went back this week to Ezekiel 37, which to me is the greatest expression of spiritual lethargy in all of the Bible. Ezekiel was a prophet of God. He was a prophet to Israel. And it was at a time when Israel had fallen into deep spiritual lethargy, as they were prone to do. They would have these spiritual highs, and then they would chase after false gods, and, and they would go out there, and, and God would call them back, and he'd raise up a prophet. And Ezekiel was a prophet to Israel in a time when they'd fallen into deep spiritual lethargy. And God comes to Ezekiel and gives Ezekiel this vision. And this is a very, very well-known passage of Scripture. If you've not heard it, read it with me. I just want to let the Scripture read, and then I'm done. And I'm going to turn it over to Derek to carry you deeper into the text. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, and make flesh grow back on you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. I always love that. A valley of skeletons, all of a sudden they start to get up, and there's this rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And now the vision is explained. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you again into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. You see, there's this wonderful reputation sometimes on the outside, but there is a terrible tragedy on the inside and the question is are you little more than a dry bone a valley of dry bones are we more than a valley of dry bones that needs sinew and needs flesh and needs the breath of God to be breathed upon us in spite of the reputation, in spite of the activity, in spite of everything, in spite of knowing all of the right words to say and all of the Christian lingo to throw around. Here is the question. When the Lord looks, does he see life or does he see lethargy? What is spiritual lethargy? What is it? James just gave the biblical picture of it, but, but if we really break down this thing even more, what, how do we define it? I'm going to actually define it this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the name a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that we call this religious lethargy, not spiritual lethargy, religious lethargy. James a moment ago asked, how could a church have the reputation of really being alive when they are in fact spiritually dead? How does, that, how does that happen? It's, it's scary, I think, when we think about this kind of question, because as he mentioned, the church is us. And so if a church can fall into this, then it could be any church. It could be city on a hill. And so we have to really unpack what does it mean to be religiously lethargic, religious lethargy. Or, or let me ask this even better before we even dig in. What is religion? What does that mean? What do I mean when I say that? You'll hear a lot of people say like, well, I have a relationship, not religion, right? Uh, as if religion is a bad thing. James chapter 1, verse 27, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Bible's definition of religion is not actually bad as long as it is unstained, pure religion. Pure religion is good. Bad religion is bad, right? This is not what I mean, though, by, by religion when I say religious lethargy. Let me give you a definition that we'll work with here this morning. Religious lethargy is when you begin doing the right things for the wrong reasons. When you begin doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Did you know that two people can say the same thing or do the same thing, and one of them can be right and the other can be totally wrong? How is that possible? How can you do, how can two people do the same thing and one of them God look at and go, blessed, and the other go, mm, you're missing the mark? It's because God desires, hear me when I say this, the right actions, he does, but he desires more than that the right heart, the right heart that motivates it. Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees uh, call out Jesus for his disciples' lack of hygiene. 
They say they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, it's, is this bad hygiene? Yes, absolutely. In a, in a COVID-19 world, this passage probably freaks a lot of people out, right? What? They didn't wash their hands? Did they have masks? The Pharisees were accusing Jesus' disciples of, of doing something that went against God's law, ceremonial or ritualistic law. The irony here, though, is that it wasn't actually God's law. God never, never put this law in writing. This was their own law that they had interpreted from another law and made it equivalent to God's law. This is where the Pharisees run into a lot of trouble in the Gospels, is that they are holding everyone to a standard that not even God himself is holding them to. And so Jesus corrects them, and then in Matthew 15, 7 and 9, he says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now listen for a moment, people of God, what Jesus just said there, what Isaiah prophesied. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. That means that that when we are... When we are thinking about what it looks like to be an, a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus, simply listening to the words come out of someone's mouth is not the whole story. Because you can honor God with your lips and your heart can be far away from Him. That is a good indicator that you have fallen into spiritual sleep. Now, I want to get more specific in this. Let's get more practical. Uh, this is not a comprehensive list that we're going to talk here th- th- through here this morning, but I want to give you four signs, if you will, of spiritual or religious lethargy in your life. Four signs that you might have fallen into spiritual sleep, that you may be no more than a valley of dry bones. Are we excited? I mean, is this not just like the most pumped up service of all time? Let's talk. Hey, we're having we, a great time. Ab- absolutely. We, we got to get honest. We got to dig down deep, and, and then there's going to be some, some hope at the end here. Number one, when you give to get when you give to get. Now, I want to just say up front, giving is an important action from God's people. God commands it in the Scripture. It's an important practice in the history of the early church. If you, if you study early Christian studies, uh, giving is very prevalent. It's a very big issue. Uh, churches did not have a lot of money. They were under intense persecution, and so the, the giving of the saints was an incredibly important aspect of the lifeline of a church. And, and so I would just say up front, this is a freebie, if you're a believer and you don't give, I would ask the question, why? Why is it? Because it's a, it is a command of God. Now, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, I love this verse because this is one of the few verses where we get words of Jesus himself that are not recorded in the Gospels. So when you think about the, the red letters, right, and, uh, which are not always correct, by the way. There, there wasn't red lettering in Greek. I don't know if you knew that or not. We added that. Um, when, when you read the, the red lettering, you are reading the words of Jesus. And I think when we think about that, we primarily think of the Gospels. But Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it's like bonus material, right? It's like the director's cut of the Bible. You get extra stuff. You get behind the scenes with Jesus. Paul says this in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, and here it is, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said... It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Jesus' words here, right? So check this out. Giving in order to receive something is never a good idea. 
It's never a good thing to give in hopes that it might endear someone to give back, to give in hopes that it might obligate someone to you in some way. Not a good idea. And this is not just true about your money. This is true about your time, your resources. If you are giving to gain credit or approval or favor or whatever, fill in the blank, and it is not for the right reasons. Let me ask you this. Why do we give? This is a good question. I'm going to give you the answers. Why do we give? One, we give in recognition that all I have, I have received. That nothing I have, I have not received, right? This is what the Scriptures uh, implore of us. The Scriptures would ask you, what do you have that you have not received? And the answer is nothing, zero. We have to recognize this. James chapter 1, verse 17, we learn that every good gift coming down from the Father of lights, this is where it comes from. It comes from the hand of God. Everything that I have, I have been given by God. Secondly, it reminds me that I own nothing. That because everything I have has been given to me, I have not been given ownership of those things. This, this is interesting. Did you know that the Scripture never, never describes Christians as owners of anything? Ever. We're called stewards. Stewards. That's a good word. That's a solid word. If you use that word, people will think you're very religious. I think it's dinner time. Absolutely. Stewards. Stewards. <laughs> what is a steward? A steward, uh, there, there's a lot of words that we have for it in the English language that are equivalent to it. Regent, viceroy, vicar. Uh, th those of you who grew up in like the… Anyone grew up? I know Anne did in the church in England. Chris? No? Okay. Well, the vicar. Um, we get the word vicarious in our English language. Many of you have heard that word. That's actually right out of the Latin. That's the Latin word that we, we translate this from, vicarious. A steward in the ancient world was someone who had the resources and the authority and the power of the king, and he made decisions in the king's stead. So typically in, in other states, a king would send a steward to another place where the king had authority or power, and the steward would make decisions for the kingdom, for the king. He would utilize his authority, his power, his resources to do what he either thought the king would want or what the king had told him he wanted. Usually it was that way. But, but he did have some leeway to interpret, right? So this is how this would work. If a king says, go over there, use my resources for this cause, and the steward goes and does that thing, he has been a good steward of the king's resources. If the king says, go, take my resources, help the weak, help the poor, and the steward goes over there and is like, ah, eh, forget the poor, we're going to do something better, right? We're going to build a theme park or whatever, <laughs> then he would be a bad steward. The king would look at him and say, you have been a bad steward. You have not managed my resources well I'm going to take them from you and give them to someone else who will be a better manager. Now, hopefully you get the application here, right? Everything that you have been given, your, your material wealth, your provision, your jobs, your family, your children, your grandchildren, you are not the owners of these things. These belong to God. It reminds me of the, uh, of the, the story of the atheist who's talking to God. It's a, it's a joke, so bear with me. Um, and he says, you know, I, I bet you anything, I can build a better sandcastle than you can. And God says, are, are you sure you want to make this bet? And the atheist says, absolutely. And God says, all right, well, have at it. You go first. And the atheist gets down in the sand, and he begins to form it, and God goes, nah, uh, uh, uh. 
use your own sand. <laughs> right? right? Nothing we have is our own. It's all been given to us by God. So when we give, we give in recognition, in, in, in remembering that everything I have has been given to me by God and that I own none of it that I am to be a manager of it, that I am to be a steward of it. Now listen, when I do that, it's much more difficult to give with the intent or motive to receive something back because I recognize I don't have any authority to take anything back because the thing I'm giving isn't mine to begin with. Are you following me? This is the first sign of religious lethargy, when you give to get. Secondly, when you serve to be seen. When you serve to be seen. Matthew chapter 6 Jesus says a lot of things with regard to our spiritual practices and the way that we are to conduct ourselves in a uh, not-so-visible manner. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. That's literally what Jesus says. When you give, don't sound a trumpet so all will see. Give secretly to your Father. I mentioned at the welcome, we are going to have baskets by the doors, right? And so just imagine the audacity of you to stand up and walk over and be like, and then take your money, turn around, thank you guys, and walk off, right? That was a pretty good horn. You like that? Yeah. I didn't even practice that. I was totally in the moment. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't act that way. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray to be seen by men, but go into your inner room and pray in secret, and your Father will hear you. Same thing with fasting. Fast in such a way where you don't draw attention to yourself to have people ask you questions, right? Like, hey, what's wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just so tired and weak because I've been fasting for 72 hours unto the Lord. <laughs> don't do that. That's Jesus saying, no, you don't do this in a visible manner. You don't, you don't do things to be seen. You do them in private. You do them for an audience of one. Let me ask you a question. This is a, this is a good diagnostic question for wherever you are in your life and whatever you're doing, whatever capacity you are serving or, or, or putting forth some effort into kingdom life. Would you still be doing what you were doing if no one knew you were doing it? Would you still be doing what you were doing if no one knew you were doing it? Or do you do it for the accolades? Do you do it to be noticed? You know what's funny is I've, I've noticed that the, the, the more I, I see how churches work, that the people who are the, the, the most spiritually lethargic are the ones that want the most attention for the things that they do. And, and it seems like especially pastors want to be just anonymous with everything because it makes our jobs easier. Right? Like, I, I was thinking about this this week with the Bible study. I write this Bible study every week for Genesis. And do you know what happens when people have questions or, or want to contend with something I've written in Bible? I get a phone call or an email. Hey, I want to ask you a question about this thing you wrote. I thought about this this week, and I thought, it would be great if I could be anonymous in my writing of that. Maybe one of the things I would do differently if I could go back. <laughs> do you do things to be noticed so that people will say, wow. What a spiritual person you are. What a great, what, a, what an amazingly godly person you are to be doing that. Or do you do it for an audience of one? Now, let me just say, apart from the fact that it's wrong to do things for these reasons, it's also dangerous for you emotionally to do this as well. And here's why. Because eventually, if you are doing things to be noticed, eventually someone is not going to notice you. And you're going to get your feelings hurt. And you're going to be eventually led to quit whatever it is that you're doing. No one even appreciates me anymore. <laughs> right? And, 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 and I've seen people leave churches over this. 
leave churches because they were doing something and, and no one high-fived them while they were doing it. And they were like, well, I guess I'll go somewhere else where other people will notice and appreciate my efforts. Now, let me just say, as a side note, okay, just to be fair, if you are serving for the right reasons and you are not being shepherded well, you're not being cared for, then th- that's a different discussion. That's a different problem, right? We as leaders, we as pastors, we need to do a, jo- a good job of, of, of making sure that we appreciate you, that we encourage you in your work in the ministry here. That's our job, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Part of equipping is encouraging, okay? So I'm not talking about that. If you've, if you've been in a situation where you were being run down and burnt out and given absolutely no grace or freedom to have any sort of life, that is not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is showing up to do something in hopes that people might think something about you because you're doing it. That is not, you're doing it for them, not for the Lord. And Jesus says, be very careful of practicing your righteousness before men. Number three, when you limit your love, ooh, now, there are so many ways I could go with this, but I'm going to take a fresh approach to this right now uh, because I think it's one that is timely. What is the great commandment? What does God tell us the greatest commandment is? Yes, sir. That is perfect. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, depending on which uh, version of that you are reading. But yes, in other words, love God with everything. Love God with everything you have. But then there's a second commandment that Jesus says is like the first one. And what is that? Yes, love your brother as yourself. I like that you say that. Love your neighbor, love your brother. Now, let me just cut to the chase here because we don't have time to unpack this. Neighbor here means everyone. It means all people. Okay? It means every human being. It does not mean your Christian neighbor. It does not mean your neighbor who acts the way you think they should act. It means all people. Now this, look, look, folks, let's just be honest. This is how we limit our love, isn't it? This is how we do it. Especially right now, this is how we limit our love on social media two months before an election. Am I right? Am I right? Let's talk about this for a moment. Because, because this is not okay. This is, not, this is something that the church has to be aware of and we have to do better in. We have to guard the way we criticize and tear down, especially other Christians, but even other people, because they don't think the same way we do politically. This is, this is, there's actually a phrase that I've seen a lot on social media uh, recently, and, it, and it's a phrase that every time I see it, I, I cringe a little bit, because I'm just like, oh, Lord, help us. And it goes something like this. You can't be a Christian if you vote for blank. Now, I'm going to say blank because I've seen it on both sides. So if, you're a, if you are someone who is a, a more conservative, then you'll hear people say, you can't be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden. Can't do it. But on the other side, you'll hear people say, well, you can't be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. Now, let me just, let's just level with me here for a moment. Both of those statements are anti-gospel. Amen. They're opposed to the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? Why would I say that? Because here's what the gospel says. The gospel says you can only be qualified as a Christian by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is not earned and that there's nothing you can do to take it away. That's the promise of hope that we have in the gospel. That is grace. That is the good news. It would be bad news if it was you're saved by grace through faith and supporting this person politically, or you're (laughs) saved by grace through faith and having this position on some worldly issue. 
That's bad news, because here's what it does. It, it tells everyone in the other camp, well, I guess God doesn't love me. And especially for non-believers, how damaging is this? I guess I, I, guess I can't go to that church. I, I wouldn't feel safe there because they think I'm a pagan. Now, may, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But let's don't judge that based on, on what they're doing politically or what they're thinking, especially without having a conversation with them, which is so, so quick. Listen, I, I'm, I'm not saying this to beat you up, okay? And, and if, you, if you have this mindset, I'm saying this because this is prevalent not at City on a Hill, but in America. And if we would do this differently, if we would choose to love our neighbors rather than engage in the kind of attacks that we see so prevalently on social media. Imagine the impact that we could make for the gospel. Imagine the freedom that we would have to have actual conversations with folks that disagree with us. We cannot limit our love. Fourth, when your forgiveness is for the few. You may think, well, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty forgiving person. Yeah, I don't, I don't limit my forgiveness. You know, when, when, whenever someone wrongs me and then they come to me and they ask for my forgiveness, I forgive. I'm a, I'm a forgiving guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, is this what the Bible says? That for, you should always forgive when someone asks for forgiveness? Well, sort of. That's not the whole story. In, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us the model prayer. He tells us how to pray. When you pray, you should pray this way. And this is one of the things he says. This is Matthew 6, 12. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, forgive me, Lord, in the same way that I have forgiven other people. Now, if I only ever limit my forgiveness to those who grovel at my feet, then that means every sin that I don't grovel at the feet of the Father with, I'm not forgiven of. Or at least that's what I'm praying for. Now, I believe God's forgiveness is bigger than that because, again, I believe the gospel is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But you get my point. You forgive others not based on how much they ask for forgiveness, but on how much you have been forgiven, which is totally and completely it means that when someone has harmed you or, or, or said something wrong to you and they have not come to ask for forgiveness, you still forgive them. And how much, uh, let me just for a moment, how much have we been fully forgiven by Jesus? Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. There it is again tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This broadens the spectrum, doesn't it? It means the person who wounded you, who never showed any remorse, and then maybe even died at some point, you're to forgive them. It means the person who wounded you and only partially apologized, you are to forgive them as well. See, when you only forgive those who have met your standards, you may be in spiritual slumber. You may be spiritually asleep. Now, hear me when I say this, okay? For, for some of you who struggle with this, with certain relationships in your life, uh, especially people who have been abusive to you, I am not talking about reconciliation right now. I'm not talking about amends right now. Those are different things. Forgiveness, reconciliation, different things. Reconciliation requires both parties to be willing to come to the table and work through the problems. Both parties have to desire to be reconciled to one another. We are called to forgive, okay, and be at peace with all men in as far as it is possible, 
Okay? So as, as much as you can conjure in your own life, be at peace with other people. But there are some people you won't be at peace with because they don't want to be at peace with you. So forgive them, okay, and move on. Not talking about reconciliation. That's, an, that's often a thing that comes up when we talk about this. And there are, I recognize, abusive relationships that you would, it would not be healthy for you to try and reconcile at this point because they are not ready, uh, and, and they may never be. And you have to be prepared for that, but you can still forgive. Now, can you see, I, I understand this is tough. This is heavy stuff. We're going to finish here. How, how easy it can be to look alive and actually be spiritually dead. When you're giving but doing it with the hopes of some kind of return, when you're serving for an audience of people, not an audience of one, when you're loving but you're limiting it by your standards and you're forgiving only a certain group of people, all of these signs are signs of religious lethargy, spiritual sleep. And Jesus says, you need to be revived. Wake up. Wake up. Now let me give you a quick defense against religious lethargy. We're going to end this quickly because I realize we got to land this plane. Two simple ways you can fight against religious lethargy in your life. Number one, we remember his example. We remember his example. We always have to come back to the foundation of the Christian life every single morning when we wake up, which is the gospel. Every day we come back to the cross of Jesus and we remember the gospel. We remember what he did, how he, how he lived, what his example was. He freely gave with nothing, with no expectation in return. That is the definition of grace. It is unearned. It is a gift. It is the free gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace through faith you have been saved, not as a result of works. It is a gift. He freely gave. Number two, he served for an audience of one. John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Uh, John 14, 31, on the contrary, that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Jesus only did what the Father commanded him. He lived for an audience of one. Number three, his love was not limited. John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the heart of God, that, that all, His love is not limited. He's being patient, waiting for the last one to come. We remember His example. But secondly, we repent of our failures. Whenever we fall asleep spiritually and we are aware of it, we become aware of it, we need to repent. Now, what does that look like? Quickly, this is what repentance looks like. This is the process of repentance. You confess the sin to yourself, to God, to one other person at least. That's kind of the 12-step model. That's kind of a beginning point. Two, there is an absence of rationalization. So you don't go, yeah, well, you know, I know I did this, but it was like I was… You don't do that. There's no rationalization. Three, you make restitution where possible. Four, you have a restored heart for Christ. In other words, your focus is now clear. And five, you have a plan for change. You have a plan to prevent yourself from moving into that again. You remember his example. You repent of your failure. When you do that, you have a solid defense against spiritual lethargy, religious lethargy. Jesus says, revive. Wake up, city on a hill. Wake up. Will we wake up or will we keep snoring? Let's wake up.
pray with me. Father, while we, we stand uh, just again in awe of who you are and, and just the, the weight of what your word calls us to. And Lord, we, we are grateful that, um, that we do live under grace because we recognize, Lord, all of us fail in, in these categories. All of us fail at, at some level. All of us give with, with some motive from time to time. There is none who serves with, with zero negative motive. We're at war constantly with our flesh, with the sin. And so we rejoice that there is grace in our failures. I pray, Lord, that you would speak applications to all of us where necessary. And that we would begin to uh, wake up where we've fallen asleep. How we love you. And we praise you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Revelation's fun, isn't it? <laughs> you know, this is the kind of thing, folks, that um, megachurches aren't doing. And that's why they're big, because a lot of people like to hear fun things. But if you will do the work, if you will listen to the wisdom of Scripture and confront the hard things, it always pays off. Can It'll... we talk about the three-toed beast next week? Or... The three-toed beast. <laughs> seven heads, the seven horns. Yeah, absolutely. That's way more interesting. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you next time.